Midlands Today with Willow Callahan on Midlands 183. A very good Monday morning to you. Coming up between now and noon, the Northern Ireland Secretary says he'll address the issue of the protocol when he meets with the leaders of the main parties at Stormont later today. Brandon Lewis will urge the parties to form an executive as soon as possible, as it hasn't been able to function since February of this year. The Sinn Féin leader is accusing the DUP of political posturing for not committing to a return to power sharing. It's not acceptable when people are struggling, when we have 400,000 people, for example, on waiting lists, hospital waiting lists, north of the border for the DUP to play games like this. They've walked themselves down a cul-de-sac and I think the politically wise thing, if I can say so, but also the democratic thing to do now is to get themselves out of that cul-de-sac and we will be talking to Sinn Féin TD for Leash Offley, Brian Stanley, just after the news at 10. You'll also be hearing from Thonishta, who was in the Midlands at the weekend. Leo Varadkar believes recognising qualifications earned in Ukraine and offering English classes to those who have flown against the war there would help them to find a job while they're in the country. He says refugees want to work, but will need help in getting it. They're actually very keen to work, and that was really encouraging too. You know, want to be part of the workforce, want to integrate in society, um, want to help us perhaps with some of the problems that we have uh, in terms of labour shortages. Um, and government now needs to be, be an enabler in that regard. Also on the agenda between now and midday, we'll be talking junk couture with students from the Midlands who have got to the final. We'll also be speaking to a Westmead cooking blogger about summer recipes in the Sport Review after 11. A try from Athlone's Robbie Henshaw helping Leinster set up a Champions Cup semi-final against Toulouse this coming weekend. Leach and Offleet will meet in what will be a historic Leinster minor hurling final. First time ever that the neighbours will have contested on Monday week. And heartbreak for Leach's ladies footballers who surrendered an 11-point lead against Wexford in the Leinster semi-finals. You can call the show 0818 300 103 for your opinions or text or WhatsApp me your views to 083 30 10 103. Now, the paper is very much dominated by the Assembly elections from across the weekend and the Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis has confirmed that he will meet with the leaders of the Stormont parties later today to talk about resurrecting the Assembly. It follows Sinn Féin's historic election victory at the weekend, uh, the first time ever that a Nationalist party will have the sway of power in Northern Ireland. The British government will focus on efforts to reform the protocol in an effort to preserve stability and Mr Lewis says it's important to now get all sides talking together. The protocol is causing problems for people across Northern Ireland. It's not just about unionist parties or any one party. It only affects communities across Northern Ireland and businesses as well regardless of their uh, voting intentions and we need to get that resolved. Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill likely to become the next First Minister if an executive is formed. She says it's important as well that all politicians now get back to work. Those of us that are for unification will make that case. I encourage those that actually don't have that perspective at this moment in time to also enter into the conversation. Let's have a healthy debate about what our future looks like, something that's better for each and every one of us. Yeah, plenty of talk from the DUP in the papers this morning, including interviews with Geoffrey Donaldson from yesterday. Uh, the DUP digging in their heels as things stand. Uh, they say they have no intention of restoring power sharing until its concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol are met. DUP MP Sammy Wilson says the UK government needs to agree a compromise with the EU. That issue has actually been imposed on the Assembly as a result of the bad negotiations that the government undertook with Europe. So they have to sort that out. Otherwise, the Assembly wouldn't work anyway. Yeah, the Alliance Party, one of the big winners from last weekend and their new LMLA, Kelly Armstrong, says if they don't want to share power with Sinn Féin, then the DUP will have to go into opposition. They shouldn't then hold the, the country to you know a standstill, leave us in this limbo without having a government. So 
if they don't want to go in, go in, don't have the respect of the democratic process. They've been in government with Sinn Féin before. It's a joint ministry, first minister and deputy first minister. If they can't thole the fact that there be a, a Sinn Féin first minister, then they have the opportunity to go into oppos- opposition and hold the government to account. Victory Day in Russia. Uh, this has advanced a bit in the last hour with Vladimir Putin again speaking about Ukraine, uh, using his speech really as a vehicle to talk about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Uh, he has described Moscow's military action as a response to Western provocation. He was speaking at a major military parade held every year to mark victory against the Nazis in World War II. Vladimir Putin has urged his army towards victory in Ukraine during his parade of troops, tanks and rockets in Moscow in the last hour. The NATO alliance began to move their troops into our neighboring territories and they were creating an, an unacceptable threat to us right at our borders. Meanwhile, Bono has continued his streak of humanitarian work by performing with the Edge in a bomb shelter in Kiev at the weekend. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky invited the musicians who say they played as a show of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. The pair performed Stand By Me as well as their own hit single With or Without You. Uh, speaking between songs, Bono expressed his love for Kiev. You know, in all the great cities of the world, Tokyo, Sydney, London, Paris, Athlone. <laughs> Uh, Belfast. But I want we'd like you to know that really there's nowhere in the whole world that we'd rather be today than in the great city of Kiev. There you go. Bono half laughs after he says it alone. And I think The Edge was the one who shouted out Kinney Gad from the background as well. Uh, but there you go. They're right up there with Paris and London, according to Bono. Uh, the U2 frontman also spoke about his anger currently towards Vladimir Putin. It's one man's war, really. Younger people know what's going on. And I trust in the younger people in Russia to throw this man out of his office that was so high and is so low right now. That's me trying to be understated. Well, here at home, a new poll over the weekend showing that 88% of Irish people support Ireland's continued membership of the EU. It was a Red Sea poll which was carried out for the European movement to mark the 50th anniversary of Ireland's accession to the European Union on May the 10th of 1972. It found that 79% of people agree that EU membership has had a positive impact on their lives. Well, 59% say Ireland should be part of an increased EU defence and security operation, which is an increase on five percentage points on a similar survey, which was held last year. Uh, But still kind of digging into the detail a little bit, uh, not huge support for the idea of Ireland going into NATO, which was discussed on the Claire Byrne show a few weeks ago. And it turned out that the 24% on the poll was actually 24% of respondents who had already said that they would increase defence funding. So it seems that that number is still remarkably low. Now, over half of Irish households have admitted to wasting water. It's the finding of a new Irish water research survey as it encourages people to conserve water as the weather gets warmer and to so stay pretty warm for the rest of the week, even though it's going to be a bit wetter than the weekend. It's unveiling its new conservation calculator today, which will help people across the country to assess how they've been using their water. Irish Water Regional Operations Manager is John O'Donoghue, and he describes how the calculator will work. The calculator itself, it offers kind of practical tips on how to reduce water water usage in the home and it's free to use on our our website and it's developed in response to research which we've carried out which shows that consumers they want additional tools to help them conserve water so the the the, i suppose the tips themselves are clearly when you go onto the calculator it's a water.ie forward slash calculator on the irish water website 
Now, sorry we heard on the news at nine o'clock with Ellen, which is running in the Irish Independent today. How many affordable homes will be built in each county per year? Uh, because under pressure, counties will see only a tiny number of affordable purchase homes being built between now and 2026 under the government's targets. Uh, you can read about this in the Irish Independent in some depth just inside uh, page three of today's edition. Uh, so first-time buyers in Dublin's commuter belt counties will see fewer than 50 affordable houses delivered each year. Figures obtained by the Irish Independent have revealed. The under pressure commuter county counties of Kildare, Wicklow, Mead, Loud, Westmead and Leash We'll only see what the paper describes as a tiny number of affordable purchase homes being built between now and 2026. There'll be fewer than 1,400 affordable homes delivered by the state in their cities each year. So that's Galway, Limerick, Dublin and Cork. Um, but when it comes to the uh, commuter belt, it's a very, very small number, really. Um, so realistically, uh, when you again go down into the detail on this one, it's only a handful, less than 50, in both Leash and Westmead. It'll be built between now and 2026. Um, it comes at a time when the government have been uh, talking big about the idea of affordable housing being built. In fact, only eight will be built in Leash, 15 in Westmead, 45 for Kildare and Loud. So it's less than 50 between now and 2026 in all of these uh, commuter counties, which is quite remarkable. The breakdown for the cities, 113 will be built in Cork, 53 in Limerick, 75 in Galway, and just 15 in Waterford. Architect and housing policy analyst Mel Reynolds has been interviewed by the paper. He says the targets are too small. He's described them as tiny. says that even if the number of homes delivered through affordable purchase last year in Dublin were doubled, it would still mean a couple of hundred homes at most within the capital. And then raising the point of the fact that it's a much bigger issue when you go outside of Dublin particularly uh, to try and get cost-effective housing available for people. Uh, the affordable housing funding scheme is aimed at helping first-time buyers who struggle to obtain traditional mortgages purchase a home. They say the aim is to make houses affordable at a reduced purchase price of around €250,000 across the country. A subsidy of 100000 will be provided by a local authority towards the cost of a home with the council keeping a stake of around about 30% in each house that is built. Uh, but it will be a very, very small amount. Uh, Sinn Féin TD, owner Wren has been reacting to the figures as well. Uh, he obtained figures through a parliamentary question, which kind of kicked off uh, the Irish Independent looking into the numbers. Uh, he says it shows the government is, quote, not serious about tackling the affordable housing crisis. He says the best way to deliver large volumes of good quality affordable homes is through local authorities and approved housing bodies. He said, despite this fact, the housing minister, Dara O'Brien, is only funding a tiny amount of genuinely affordable homes to purchase. Uh, Mr O'Rin says that we need at least 4,000 affordable purchase homes a year across the country and the government isn't even proposing half of that. Instead, they'll be giving huge handouts to big developers to deliver overpriced homes. So developers could get potentially up to €100,000 per house that they build. Uh, So it would appear... Uh, we're not going to be having local authority housing being built on a large scale based on those new government targets. Now, uh, all cervical cancer tests in Ireland are still being sent abroad for screening. Uh, that's despite assurances in the wake of the cervical check controversy that lab capacity here will be beefed up as a result. The Irish Times reporting on this today in page six of the paper. Uh, they say the only Irish cervical screening lab at the Coombe Hospital in Dublin stopped processing samples last December in the wake of the cyber attack and has remained paused ever since. So all of those uh, swabs and samples are going abroad currently. Most of them are going to Germany. A solicitor says the government won't own the building of the new National Maternity Hospital. Cabinet ministers delayed signing off on the project at the St Vincent's campus in Dublin last week as opposition politicians and campaigners demanded to see the details of the new deal. The new facility is on land leased from a company which was given the property by the Religious Sisters of Charity. However, the government insists it will be free from religious interference 
Independence. Uh, Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach, was speaking earlier today on RT on Morning Ireland. He also said that they would be pushing ahead uh, with the scheme for the National Hospital. But solicitor at McGar Solicitors, Simon McGar, uh, says the terms of the lease would assign ownership to the newly formed company, St Vincent's Holding. Schedule 1 of the lease confirms that, uh, the first schedule confirms that the landlord is in control and will own the land and the buildings and any future buildings built on it. And don't forget that this uh, building, when we do build this building, it's not going to be last for 300 years. It's probably going to be replaced a number of times across t- uh, 299 yeah. years. So the ownership will roll over in respect yeah. of that. Uh, the Minister Stephen Donnelly will be speaking about this when he goes before an Oireachtas Health Committee, which is on Wednesday afternoon. He'll be going before the Dáil then on Thursday about the developments from Wednesday to talk about the controversy at that stage. Now, Deputy Breed Smith, who will be at the committee meeting on Wednesday, says she has a number of questions for the Minister. I think there'd be a lot of questions about the nature of the lease. I think there'd be questions about the outstanding documents and maps and things that we haven't seen, what the uses will be made of different parts of the hospital, but also the in relation to the, the lease for 299 years, which Michal Martin repeatedly told us is so obviously ownership by another name. We find out later on that the six conditions attached to that lease. Now returning to the Ukraine situation, a Fine Gael senator is calling for two Irish MEPs to resign after he visited Ukraine last week. Senator Barry Ward says Claire Daly and Mick Wallace have been pushing a false Russian narrative since the start of the conflict and must step down from the European Parliament. He's accused Daly of victim blaming after she said Ukrainian politicians became puppets of another power by voting to end their country's neutrality. Senator Ward says Ukrainian politicians are doing their utmost to try and help their country to survive. I know that Claire Daly denied last week that she was on Putin's payroll, but she cannot deny that she has relationships with Russia. She appears regularly or certainly has appeared regularly on in Russian media. Now, COVID-19 um, pushed back electric picnics. So we didn't have electric picnic in 2020 or 2021. It is due to return later this year to Strab Valley. But the company behind the electric picnic music festivals made a profit of nearly 2.4 million in 2020, despite having no revenues after the event was cancelled due to the pandemic. EP Republic, which is ultimately owned by a joint venture between Live Nation and the concert promoter Dennis Desmond, posted the profit following an insurance payout which they got from the cancelled event, which came in at 3.6 million euro. The profits for the year was up 50% on the event's profits for 2019. So it was more profitable to get the insurance payout than to actually host the event. Uh, that was the last year, 2019, that Electric Picnic was staged in Leash when it generated revenues of close to 17 million euro. But understandably, they had costs massively down because the concert didn't actually take place. So the insurance payment was 3.6. The 2020 accounts for the company were signed off on just a few weeks ago. They show that the business had cash in its balance sheet of almost 7.3 million euro at the end of 2020. Its retained earnings to that point were also close to 7.9 million. So uh, the company's still in rude health despite the fact that the electric picnic didn't take place in 2020. Now Shudi Gatwa says he can finally breathe following the announcement that he is the new Doctor Who after being cast in the role months ago. The 29-year-old will become the 14th Time Lord after Jodie Whittaker announced her departure. The Scottish actor has starred as Eric in Netflix's hugely popular Sex Education. Returning writer Russell T Davies says his audition for Doctor Who was simply phenomenal. A blazing talent. Um, I've watched television I've watched Sex Education. Loved what he's done. But when Shooty as he walks in the room and you meet him, pow. And in that moment, I knew, I knew. And you don't know what your boss is going to say. We passed the audition on there. I went, yes, 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 yes. Like that. Amazing. 
And Elon Musk, the billionaire, says that he wants to double Twitter's revenue by 2028. Its new owner has set his sights on more than doubling the user count from 217 million up to 600 million across the next three years. Uh, the New York Times, their report has been carried by a lot of the newspapers this morning, report that particular emphasis will be placed on driving subscribers to Twitter Blue. Musk expects to generate around $12 billion through advertisements alone within the next six years. So that's why he has spent uh, $43 million uh, on, uh, $43 billion, I should say, in uh, taking over the company. Uh, we're going to be talking about the launch of Tullamore's community submission to the third national strategy on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence in a few minutes. Now, 51 Midlands clubs have taken part in a submission for the national strategy for domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. The Justice Minister was in Tullamore at the weekend and was presented with the document by the Tullamore Rotary Club. Helen McEntee has been speaking to to Midlands 103's Cameron Clark about the document. Well, firstly, I just want to thank, um, I suppose, the Rotary Club, but everybody who's taken part in this. It is a really comprehensive submission, uh, and the fact that you have 51 organisations have come together, uh, and those organisations represent thousands of people in Tullamore and the surrounding areas, um, it just shows you how comprehensive it is, the amount of uh, input it's had, uh, and what I can say is that it is being uh, has already been considered and is feeding into the third national strategy that's going to be published in the next few weeks. So it's a, a really important piece of work um, and I think it shows just how important this issue is to the local community tackling domestic and sexual violence and in particular the issue of violence against women. There are four pillars mentioned in the strategy based around preventing violence against women. Can you talk to me a bit about those four pillars? Four pillars are based on the Istanbul Convention and that's prevention, protection, prosecution uh, and coordination of policy. Uh, the prevention piece is very much um, going to focus on education. So how do we prevent violence against women? How do we prevent this type of abuse from happening? Uh, a lot of focus on education in schools, engaging with younger people at a much earlier age. Uh, you know, what what appropriate relationships are, what consent is, how do we treat people with respect, uh, but also about a, a national awareness. So there will be a huge focus on national awareness campaigns that will be targeted at not just younger people, but wider society as well. Um, the protection piece is really about making sure that when people come forward, that the supports and the services are there. So there'll be a huge focus on refuge and accommodation, of which I know and we all know we have more to do there. It'll be about making sure that no matter what county you live in, if you reach out and seek help, that the services are there, that you know where to go, that the information is easily accessible. Um, and as people might be aware, services are now going to be moving into my own department in justice so that we have policy and services in the same department. The third piece then is about prosecution. Um, this is something that I've been working on since I came into this department. How do we make a criminal justice system that is victim-centred? It's not very friendly or welcoming to victims at the moment, so how do you make sure that from the moment a person seeks help, be it going to a member from Garda Siakana, reaching out to a friend, to an organisation, that they're helped every step of the way uh, and that it's made easier uh, and that there's more support for them. And we're, we're already doing work there, but there'll be more focus in this strategy. And the final piece is hugely important. It's the coordination, making sure that the new strategy, what's in this document that had been given by the Tullamore Rotary Club today, that it's implemented, that there's an oversight mechanism, that there's a coordination between not just government agencies, departments but a lot among local communities as well and so we'll have uh, a new agency developed over the next uh, year and a half and that will then feed into the work that I'm doing and my colleagues are doing at a government level that will feed into then all of the work that needs to happen at a local level and I know that I'll have full support from everyone here in Tullamore in making sure that any of the actions are, are implemented on the ground. How important is community response to a strategy like this? 
it's vital. It doesn't work without that type of community response and engagement. Um, and I mean, the only way that you tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence uh, is through a societal change. The only way you bring about societal change is by bringing everyone on board. So we're mainly talking about violence against women. But if it's only women that are coming forward um, to take part in, in implementing this strategy, it won't work. So it's women, men, young, older, it's from all walks of life. And again, you can see that represented here from sporting organisations this morning to the local business chambers, credit unions, to the medical professionals, the Rotary Club and, and so, so many more. So uh, it's absolutely vital we have everyone on board. If we're going to achieve the goal, and that is zero tolerance of violence against women uh, and zero tolerance of any kind of abuse against anyone. Former President of Tullamore Rotary and Chairman of the project, Ronan Berry, outlined the results of the survey that was sent out to 51 local and national national organisations. We asked people questions on the first three of those pillars, prevention, protection and prosecution. In one area, we've discovered that really the group is somewhat split as to whether enough has been done and there's enough in the current strategy as it stands to bring about real change and to bring about enough action. I think it indicates how difficult a job and task that the Department of Justice have ahead of them. However, having listened to Minister McEntee this morning, I think we're very confident that the strategy will meet the needs of our people as well. Overall, 51 people and organisations contributed to our submission and they were very much in favour of a blend of measures focused on both prevention and protection. In the second pillar, protection, the outstanding finding that we got was that more should be done for victims, both male and female, that do manage to come forward having experienced an incidence of domestic, sexual or gender-based violence. Under the third pillar, prosecution, there was strong agreement among the groups, with the majority agreeing that existing legislation around sexual violence and domestic violence is inadequate at present. And again, this is something that Minister McEntee alluded to in her speech today and has made strong commitments that they will look at, at um, you know, making sure that the right balance is found as the, once the new strategy is released as well. After handing your submission to Minister Helen McEntee, are you confident you can accomplish the results you set out with your objectives? Yes, I think having met the Minister, when we first set up our subgroup and we looked at this project and we looked at what our long-term objective was, that is to hold this government and successive governments accountable on the key deliverables that are will, will appear in this strategy. We knew that's a long-term thing. And that's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of voluntary effort, community effort. It's going to take money and time. But that's our long-term goal. We wanted to propose that Tullamore become a pilot town for some new initiative based on the new strategy that will come out. But as a short-term goal, we wanted to gather the community response, we wanted to publish it, and we said, let's try and get this in front of the Minister for Justice. It's it's not the end of something. I said to our subgroup today that this is a milestone event for us, but it's only the beginning of a larger project and a project that has to be embraced by our entire community, not just in Tullamore, not just in Offaly or the Midlands, but across the country and beyond, to ensure we bring about real change in this area. President of Tullamore Rotary, Owen Sheehan, spoke to me about the work that went into gathering the 51 organisations for a collaborative submission of feedback for the National Strategy on Domestic, Sexual and Gender-Based Violence. And it's important that, I suppose, as a community, we try and get out and try and get to the heartlands and try and get to the grassroots with regard to people's opinions and people's feelings of what's important. Um, And it's important that normal, ordinary people who are exposed to any kind of um, violence or sexual violence, domestic violence, are are given an opportunity to air their uh, opinions and to participate in what is in essence a survey, but feeds into a broader picture and feeds into the um, 
the ministerial um, strategy and the national strategy. It's important that the people on the ground are given some form of opportunity as opposed to possibly on electronic platforms where these things can be hijacked and they can be, so I suppose, manipulated to some extent by certain groups. This just gives a sort of an overall picture, particularly from people participating in, in, in shall we say, just simple voluntary organisations around the country. And it feeds into the entire thing. Now, there are organisations who will provide their own uh, feedback through the various um, PR companies and whatnot, and, and they're more than welcome to do that. But it is important to do that. It's, it's important to kind of garner some, some ground opinion, coalface opinion, call it what you will, of people who are out there and just in as much as a, a census gar- gathers information, this is gathering thoughts, perceptions and people's understanding and people's wishes and aspirations. And that report by Cameron Clark. Now we're celebrating nurses here on Midlands 103. We've been asking you to tell us about the wonderful caregivers in your community. We're going to be finding out about one of the great caregivers in the Midlands when we come back after this short break. Welcome back to this morning's show. Will O'Callaghan sitting in for Will Faulkner. Now we are celebrating nurses here on Midlands 103 and asking you to tell us about the wonderful caregivers in your community. Those who care for you at home, in hospital or in your hour of need. You can treat them to a Midlands 103 magic moment and a stunning prize hamper from the Bridge Centre in Tullamore by entering on midlands103.com with your stories. Nurses deserve more than just a round of applause. To give them more, with thanks to the Bridge Centre in Tullamore, big city shopping in the heart of the Midlands. Now, delighted to say that we're joined uh, by Ina Clinton from Mullingar. Ina, good morning to you. Hello, Will. How are you? Uh, I'm keep- to speak to you. Good stuff. I'm keeping well, you know, as well as you can be at the start of a week. Um, tell us why you've not gone strictly for a nursery. You've gone for a carer, Alina. Tell us a bit more. Yes, I've gone for a home carer. Yes, well, I nominated Alina. Uh, she's from Lithuania. I had nominated her for this special award for nurses and carers because she's a very special person. She has been coming to us for the past year together with two or three other carers. They're all very excellent, but Alina is special. We got home care to help my husband when he came home from hospital in April 21. He needed some assistance with showering, dressing. His mobility isn't too good either. She comes for an hour each day, every morning. She helps to get him up out of bed, shower him, shave him, dress him for the day. She's very thorough, conscientious and so caring. She's just like one of the family, really. My husband gets on very well with her. She is so gentle, too. She will talk to him. She'll take him out for a walk, weather permitting. Some days she'll play Scrabble with him. Other times she'll help with the crosswords. And Eddie teaches her some Irish, bits of Irish. And she teaches us bits of Lithuanian as well. So it works both ways. Yeah, it sounds like, you, so, like you've, you've been blessed there. Because, I mean, aside from the essentials yeah. and things that are giving you a bit of relief with all those kind of essential things in the morning, to go the extra step and pretty much to become friends with the family and to be staying around for all those social things, like the Scrabble, like the chats, like the bit of language exchange that's going on, that's a care going the extra mile right there. Yeah, she's absolutely terrific. Brilliant. And he gets on so well with her. Like, as I said, she is just like one of the family. We have been very lucky to get so much home care. 
we get seven day a week, three visits a day. So we've been we've been blessed. That's great. And I, I presume this has helped your this has surely helped your husband out quite a bit as well. I mean, um, like when you're coming back, it's not easy to come back into the house when you're recovering. In this case, like to get a good yeah. care must make a massive difference. Oh, it does. It's it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we didn't think we would get it, but we are so delighted. They're all excellent, but she's a uh, step above the rest, really. She goes that extra mile, as you said. You know, so. Well, look, hopefully she's going to enjoy the hamper. Hopefully she enjoys the fact and is not embarrassed by the fact that you've brought it up on the radio, what she does for you, and she is going to be she pleased about when she hears about it. She probably will be. <laughs> well, look, you can put up with that. That can be the conversation around the Scrabble this evening. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's true. Well, look, Ina, it was lo- lovely to talk to you this morning. Um, great to hear that your husband is doing well. Um, our best wishes to him and also to Alina yeah. for all the help that she's given as well. He's great. He's in very good form and he's, he's great. And a lot of it is thanks to Alina and the carers. Great stuff. It's a lovely really? story. Yeah. Ina, lovely to talk to you this morning. Thanks a million. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, you're one of those kind of wonderful stories of people that are helping out across the community. If you want to celebrate a nurse, celebrate a care, someone who's been helping you out, doesn't matter if it's at home, if it's at hospital, helping out a family member, get your stories in. Will O'Callaghan sitting in for Will Faulkner on this Monday. Now, Northern Ireland's political parties will be meeting at Stormont later today for talks on forming a new power-sharing executive. However, the DUP has refused to commit to discussions until its demand for changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol are met. The US, Irish and UK governments are all urging them to reconsider their position, while the Sinn Féin leader says the DUP's actions are unacceptable and is a Accused the party of political posturing. Mary Lou Macdonald says its actions will cause real hardship to people in Ulster. The DUP is on their own amongst the other parties in taking this stance. The rest of us realise whatever our points of divergence or difference, all of us know full well that there is a widespread popular expectation, a correct expectation, that people roll up their sleeves now, get back to work and start delivering on the bread and butter issues. Now, Northern Ireland's Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, has also been speaking ahead of the talks and he says the EU have so far shown inflexibility about reforming the protocol. The protocol that was designed to protect the Good Friday Agreement is what is actually putting the most stress on it at the moment. And we can't let that continue. We do need to get a resolution to this. We've always said we take nothing off the table and that hasn't changed. We will do what we need to do to resolve these issues for the benefit of people in Northern Ireland. We're joined on the show now by Lee Shoffley, Sinn Féin TD, Brian Stanley. Brian, good morning to you. Good morning, Will, and good morning to your listeners. Based on what we've heard there, uh, given that the DUP have given all indications and listened to Geoffrey Donaldson, listened to Sammy Wilson at the weekend, that they are not going to bow unless there is some kind of reform to the EU protocol which they find agreeable. You know, we hear the Secretary of State there saying that the EU are very unlikely to agree to any kind of reform. Are we heading for a standoff here, Brian? Well, the moment the truth has arrived, Will, um, the facts are is, is that uh, we've just had an election. Um, I canvassed one weekend in that election about four weeks ago, um, and I canvassed a mixed area in at the very top of North Antrim, Ballycastle, uh, myself and a few other members from Leash, and I can assure you that the protocol never came up on one doorstep. Even, you, even unionists who were hostile to Sinn Féin position on other matters uh, the protocol was not their big, not their big issue. Um, so the reality is, is that we got 29% on, on Friday when the votes were counted. The DUP got 21 and the Alliance Party got 13%. Right? Uh, there's a clear mandate, absolutely clear mandate, 
uh, you know, all other parties recognised that, all of the smaller parties outside of the three I mentioned recognised the fact that all roads lead to Stormont. The, the protocol uh, was not designed at Stormont, cannot be solved at Stormont, and Stormont has no role to play in solving it, except to say that which we have consistently done, that wherever there are problems, bureaucratic problems, or problems with less than, uh, we'll say, checks and that at the ports of Larne and Belfast, that should be done. And this has an implication for the 26 counties for this state, because if there's a hole in the single market, in the European single market, that will have implications in how the EU deal with this country as a whole. And the facts are, is that because the DUP <clears throat> and, their, and their counterparts in the British Tory party went for the hardest form of Brexit, and cheered on by the DUP, there has to be checks and borders somewhere. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and the border has either to be, we either build a wall from Dundalk to around to Derry, between Derry and, and, and Letterkenny, uh, over 200 miles long, or we have minimal checks at three ports going into the north. That's what we have. And the European Union, while we would... We wouldn't agree with him on everything, and obviously, you know, we're we're we're, we're pro-European Union, and we're an internationalist party, along with being an Irish Republican party. Um, but in, to their credit, and Marco Sarkovic and his colleagues in the European Union have bent over backwards to try and accommodate any concerns that are around the protocol. But the facts are, I'm telling you this, that the protocol may be a big issue for the DUP, and I believe it's a tactic they're using. Uh, but the facts are is that on the ground, that is not a major issue. And I would remind your listeners that since the protocol was put in place, that trade from the north to the south has increased by 62 to 63%, and trade from the 26 counties to the six counties has increased by 58%. So the reality on the ground is, is that businesses are doing well in the north. There are some difficulties. There was huge difficulties with medicines, bringing medicines in from Britain into the north. They have been now resolved. There are still some outstanding difficulties. And the European Union have said it until they have a pen in their head saying it, that we want to sit down with Liz Truss, who is the British Foreign Minister dealing with this matter, and her officials to sort out this. But the British so far have welched from that. The DUP, I believe, they have, they have been faced with a problem for the first time in 100 years, in 101 years, that Geoffrey Donaldson literally has to accept the fact that he has to be Deputy First Minister to a Republican, worse still for Geoffrey Donaldson, a Republican woman, right? Uh, and that is the real problem here. And added to that is the problem since the Good Friday Agreement was, was put in place. Because never forget that Geoffrey Donaldson, a former member of the Ulster Defence Regiment, UDR, um, uh, he left, he left the, the Ulster Unionist Party, the more moderate Unionist Party, to join the DUP because of the in protest at the Good Friday Agreement. They're, they're, that's the realities that we're dealing with here. And the DUP, what I would say at this point is that the Irish government, the European Union, the American government, and certainly Sinn Féin is making, need to make it clear, absolutely crystal clear, that the, the, that the trade agreement between the European Union and Britain is an, internationally, an international agreement uh, that the protocol is an integral part of that. It can't be scrapped. Yes, and uh, Simon Coveney has said this time and time again, 
uh, you know, ministers here have said it, the European Union has said it, yes, there are parts of it that can be tweaked. There are parts of it that can be, you know, in terms of the implementation of it, where, where there are difficulties, you know, officials can work to sort those out. And 80% of those have been sorted out. It's up to the British government, you know, and for the DUP to get real and recognise the fact that they signed up, the British, I say, the British government signed an international agreement. It has worked out between, not with the European Union on its own, but in partnership with, the, with Britain. And Britain now wants to tear up that agreement. They can't do that. That can't be done. You can't tear up international agreements. Uh, whatever, that's fantasy land. So, it, as I said, the moment the truth has arrived, all roads lead to Stormont this morning. Sinn Féin will be up on the hill of Stormont with other parties, I'm sure, uh, with the other smaller parties, ready to form an executive to get government in place to deal with the issues that are affecting people up there. Health, housing, jobs, cost of living, climate change, all of the other issues that we need to deal with. And yes, we need to continue making clear to the European Union that any outstanding difficulties there are with the, are with the implementation of the protocol at the ports of Larne and Belfast need to be sorted out. But they won't be sorted out. Geoffrey Donald can, can stand outside Parliament buildings for the next 10 years if he wants to. But the reality is that will not change the protocol. It will not uh, tear up the protocol. The protocol is there as part of that trade agreement that was negotiated in partnership between the British government and the European Union. And that's, that needs to continue to be made absolutely clear. If I heard the Americans correctly over the weekend, uh, Congressman Neil, if I heard Joe Biden correctly in the past, they recognise that, they understand that, and the British government needs to just face reality and to need to stop you know, allowing the unionists, the DUP element of unionism, because other unionist parties are willing to accept the fact that things can be worked out. But they need to uh, you know, uh, say to the DUP, you know, this is reality, this cannot be uh, torn up, uh, and we need to get in there and implement it. It feels to me, Brian, as if unionism is at a bit of a crossroads now. I mean, as you've outlined for the first time in a century, they are facing the prospect of a nationalist-led assembly in Northern Ireland after the election result. They've watched Alliance take up some of the support that would have previously been there for the Ulster Unionist Party and for the DUP. And their position is not as strong with the Tories as it would have been previously when they were propping up the balance of power within Westminster. So at this stage, they might be aligned on the idea of trying to rip up the protocol with the Tory party, but the Tory party are openly admitting that they're getting little change out of the EU when it comes to any talks about uh, trying to make drastic changes to the protocol around Northern Ireland. Where does unionism go from here? Well, what unionism has to do is, and I'm saying this in a, in a conciliatory way, we could have at any point over the last 25 years say, you know, we could have said we're not going to sit down with this one or that one or the other one or do business with the DUP, right? Don't forget, Martin McGuinness done, done business. Him and Ian Paisley recognised the fact that there was underground issues to be, to be dealt with. There was issues that are to people. We need a functioning parliament. We need a functioning executive in the north. That needs to be put into place as soon as possible. Um, and, you know, that's, there's a huge demand there from people. And I think, you know, all of the Vox Pops, uh, and certainly, and I'm not saying that I have comprehensive knowledge on this, but from what I've seen on the ground uh, in terms of what people said to me on doorsteps in Ballycastle and up around that area of North Antrim, which is predominantly a unionist area, was that what people want is to want to want government in place uh, to deal with the issues, you know, the bread and butter issues sometimes as I refer to, the cost of living, the health services, the housing issue and all of those things. And, you know, 
you, you can you can have you can grandstand as long as you like. But like we've had to do business with people. I mean, you know, we're prepared to do business with Jeffrey Donaldson. As I said, Jeffrey Donaldson would have been a former member of the UDR, right? A regiment of the British Army, would, which would have had, um, you know, would have which would have dealt out a lot of punishment to nationalists, and uh, you know, it would be uh, evidence of collusion there between that that regiment and Lila's paramilitaries in the murder of nationalists. You could get into all about that one about three, but you know, it, it's the first day of the future, and you have to move on. You can't keep going backwards, and you know, what unionism has to do is, is to stop looking backwards. Uh, and recognise the new reality of the 21st century, recognise the reality that they're no longer a majority, recognise the fact that, you know, that all of the other parties, that are, complete, that are completely isolated, all of the other parties, big and small, all want an executive in place. Uh, internationally, internationally, you know, there is no support for their position. And it may suit Boris Johnson to play around with this for a while because to keep himself in power, because don't don't forget that he has not alone has he right wing unionists, uh, you know, taking this position, but within the British Tory Party, you have the hardline breaks of tears on the right wing of that party, and he may feel that by keeping some of them happy at the moment and playing a bit of hardball with uh, uh, with the European Union, that he can save his own skin, given the fact that he's in political bother over, um, you know, holding parties during uh, during COVID lockdown and etc. etc. and the fact that he's facing charges for things like that, uh, that may he may feel that's helped to stabilise his own position. But you can only play you can only play act like that for so long. You know the day of reality has arrived. It's here, and you know we may all wish. We, um, you know we'll often go up in the morning and say, you know, Jesus, what we're facing today is going to be difficult, or you know, or the situation, the political situation we're in is difficult, or we have this, you, you know, uh, maybe problems to try and work and resolve. But the reality is, is that you have to deal with them. You can't. You can only you can only postpone reality for so long. And you know the northern state was set up on a on a sectarian headcount deliberately to keep a seventy thirty uh, unionist majority uh, in place that would always be a unionist government for a for a unionist people. Uh, that reality has now changed. There's no longer seventy percent unionist. That's the facts of it. Um, you know, it was often 72 and 73 percent unionists because of the position nationalists were put in. But the facts are is, is that, you know, we're here now in the position that we're in in 2022. And that's the, that's what you have to deal with. You can't you can't keep living in in the past and in a place where you wish to be. But ca- in reality, can't be there. And it's important as well. Just this is an important point as well that, you know, the, the full the Good Friday Agreement that we negotiated back back 25 years ago, that has never been fully implemented. You know, the North-South Ministerial Council, for example, that's ministers from the North and South, which are supposed to meet on a regular basis, monthly basis or whatever, to sort out things in relation to North-South trade, tourism, health services, which are, and there is cooperation in those areas already. But further cooperation and development is being held back because of the fact that that North-South Ministerial Council is not meeting. Why? because the DUP refused to send ministers to it during the term of the last storm the executive. And uh, nationalists, you know, if a nationalist minister is going, there also has to be a unionist minister going. And, you know, you just cannot keep holding up progress on the island of Ireland, Ireland of Ireland, as long as that. You know, and a, a small minority, a minority who are part of a minority in one corner in the top northeast of Ireland can't continue doing that you know, for another century. 
we can't allow that to continue. And you know, I think that the European Union get that. I think that the uh, I think the Americans are clear about it. We're absolutely clear about it. And the government here, I think, you know, while and I have to be careful with the words, and I'm trying to be careful with mine as well. You know, uh, the facts are is, is that that you cannot keep postponing that reality. And I think that the sooner unionists come around to that position, the better. And it, if you allow people to live in fantasy land, they will continue living in fantasy land. And certainly unionists that I've met over the years, including some of the former paramilitaries uh, that, that, I have, that I have met over the years, uh, they, some of them, a lot of them actually have, you know, are open to the idea of greater accommodation with the 26 counties. They are open to, uh, you know, greater partnership. They are willing to move. The problem is, is that the, you know, the leadership of the DUP has become so entrenched over the last number of years that, you know, they haven't given that leadership to say to people, you know, it's time to move on. Here's the situation we're in. The Brexit, in, in relation to Brexit, for example, you know, they campaigned for Brexit. Uh, not alone that, uh, when Theresa May reached a deal with the European Union, which would have, uh, I suppose, done away with the need for a sea, what's called a sea border, uh, they rejected that with the, with the hardline Tories. Uh, they brought down the help to bring the help to, to end Theresa May's leadership, uh, and they went for the hardest form of Brexit, along with Boris Johnson, and the hardest form of Brexit uh, because it diverged from European Union rules so far that it meant that there had to be a border somewhere. And as I said, there's only two places you can have the border. You can build a wall from Dundalk the whole way around, across the, top, across the bottom of Fermanagh, Tyrone, uh, the whole way around to Donegal and up, to, up between Letterkenny and, and uh, Derry. Uh, you can build a wall like that and you can try and, and you can put armed soldiers all along it uh, or you can have minimal checks, minimal checks at the ports of Larne and Belfast and Derry and some of the smaller ports. Yeah. That's the reality. And the European Union, to their credit on this one, they gave us a commitment in the doll. They gave all parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, all the parties a commitment uh, in the doll uh, when, when uh, the head of the European Union was over a few years ago that we could trust them, that they would, that they would hold firm on it, that there wouldn't be a land border, that they would, you know, that they would stick by what was called at, at that stage the backstop which subsequently became the protocol. And in fairness to them, they've done that. And there's, there ain't no other show in town. But as, as to the outcome of this election, as I said, the results are clear. People want a government in place. And there needs to be a government in place to work with the government in Dublin, to work with our government here, to make sure that we continue building the all-Ireland economy, that the successes of the last 12 months and 13 months since the protocol was put in place, that we continue to build in that, that we continue cooperation in building the health services north and south and cooperation on health, on tourism, on the economy, on jobs, on infrastructure and transport. That's where our roads lead, not back to the past, back to fantasy land. Brian, what was your reaction and Sinn Féin's reaction? I mean, look, it was less than 24 hours after that historic result for the party that there was the editorial piece that probably got quite a bit of attention at the weekend in the Times London edition about Michelle O'Neill, who's on the cusp of you know, becoming First Minister, where the editorial was from pregnant schoolgirl to Northern Ireland's next First Minister. What was the reaction? Because I assume it was spoken about among the party. Well, well, look, I've, I've spoken to Michelle a number of times, including when she was Minister for Agriculture. She, I, she was down here and I had her in Mount Melly 
and I had her on a couple of farms in County Leash and events down here. Uh, and she's a very capable uh, woman. Uh, she came into the party very young. Um, the fact that she's single, a single parent is not an issue for Sinn Féin. The fact that she's a woman isn't an issue for Sinn Féin. I welcome the fact that she, uh, here we have somebody who is a single parent. Um, uh, I welcome the fact that she's a woman. I welcome the fact that she's an absolutely, uh, uh, you know, very good political leader. She's a progressive woman. She's a progressive Republican out- outlook uh, about working with people. She's excellent. She's proved herself to be able to work in partnership with others. And I think Martin McGuinness recognised that with her uh, when she worked with Martin McGuinness in Stormont, that she was very good at, you know, working with people of all backgrounds and traditions. So we're not that bothered about, you know, the commentary across the water in terms of what people, you know. But I think, I think most people in the North, uh, you know, including unionists, you know, let's face it, like, you know, you know, most unionist people, when you actually get talking to people, you know, when you actually get talking to them, you know, they're, they're no different than us. They have the same life challenges as we have. They have the same concerns as we have. You know, um, you know, they may have different aspirations or come from a different tradition, but that doesn't mean, you know, that, that everybody can't work together. But I, I think that the vast majority of people, uh, in the vast majority of people, I think, on this island and across the water, uh, you know, would look positively on the fact that, you know, she's a relatively young person, uh, you know, uh, it's good to see women. We have, we have two women leading the party, uh, her and Mary Lou. I supported the two of them for leadership. And I told, I told the two of them that before before they were uh, uh, put into the position, that I would be supporting them. In any, if a vote came to a vote on them, uh, I gave that commitment to them. Uh, and I think that we're lucky, we're lucky to have them. But whether it's a man or a woman um, leading the party, um, Shinners wouldn't be that bothered about that. Shinners, we, we, we don't make any differentiation hmm. between men and women. And, you know, as you notice, there are a lot of our candidates in the North are women. A lot of them are young women. Uh, in the Dáil, I think we have the highest percentage of, of women TDs. Um, you know, there'll be local authority elections in two years' time. Hopefully we'll have a good slate of, of uh, you know, good gender balance. So I think I think that's a positive thing, and it's part of Ireland. It's part of Ireland growing up. It's not just... You know, it's not just Sinn Féin, but I think if you look at the Alliance Party as well, the Alliance Party in the North there had a lot of a lot of women uh, candidates elected. And, you know, people will, in this day and age, people aren't going to look at them and say, were the single parents or were they, or were they, or were they not? Like, you know, that's not that's not an issue for people, you know. Um, I think what's, what's for people is is that have they got, have their political leaders and the people elect, the elect, have they got the commitment, have they got the integrity, have they got the commitment, to push on and to represent people's interests, and and we'll all make mistakes. Will Callaghan, will Brian Stanley, will you know every human being makes mistakes. Except that when we make mistakes, you you know recognise and move on. Uh, but Michelle Michelle's been there now as uh, as deputy leader of the party and the head of the party at uh, Stormont for the last uh, nearly five years now. Mm. And you know I've watched her carefully, and she hasn't put. Too many. She hasn't put a foot, a foot wrong, as far as I can see, on too many occasions. She's done well. Uh, she's been very firm. She's very good with people. And like Mary Lou, uh, she's very determined. And both of them want want us to do our best and to, to make that clear to us all the time. Uh, but they're also good team leaders uh, and good listeners, and that's what's good. And you know, I don't mind somebody being a bit 
pushy, being a bit pushy with us and pushing us to do our best. But the facts are is that Michelle, Michelle has been a, a team leader in the North. Mary Lou has been very good in terms of uh, leading us in the doll and leading the party overall in the 32 counties. And, mm. you know, man, whether it's a man or woman's leading the party, will that's the word that it's part of. I, I'll finish on this one. It's a bit like, you know, what you started with in relation to, you know, a big change politically in terms of, you know, the first time in 101 years. It's also the, the fact that we have two women leading the party. It's part of the change in Ireland. It's, we have to accept that. That's how things are going. And certainly as a, as, as a man, I, I, I never mind being uh, having a woman as uh, as as my boss or, or my leader. And certainly with the way Michelle and Mary Lou have handled themselves, uh, as I said, we'll all make mistakes. But in the in the general run of things, both of them have done a good job. And while they continue doing that, they'll be leading our party. Brian Stanley, Leash Offley TD for Sinn Féin. Many thanks for joining us on the show. We'll be talking junk at shore when we come back after this short break. Welcome back in to the Midlands Today Show. We'll look at him with you until 12. We're going to be talking sport with Michael Brophy just after 11. Uh, looking back on what's been a really interesting weekend for the Midland Counties, including Leash and Offaly getting through to the Leinster Minor Hurling Final. Only the fourth time since 2000 that Offaly will have contested the decider. Second time since 2000 for Leash. They've never played each other in the final before. Leash have had a remarkable run to that decider, knocking out both Kilkenny and Wexford, two of the big dogs on their way to the final. There was a bit more expected of Offaly after they topped their group in the round robin and they overcame a strong Dublin team on Saturday and we're looking forward to a coin toss later today a very unusual way of deciding things but it'll either be in Tullamore or Port Leash the coin toss will tell us more now uh, while the Met Gala kicked off the week with some show-stopping designs last week last Thursday it was the turn of Ireland's up-and-coming eco-conscious creators and fashion designers at the first live final of Junk Couture which is powered by Orti since 2020 60 Haute Couture designs made from 100% recycled materials were created and modelled by talented post-primary students they took to the stage for the Dublin City final at the Borgosh Energy Centre and then coming from the Borgosh Energy Centre we have got uh, designs from the Midlands which have made their way through to the next stage of the competition. I'm delighted to say that we've got uh, some of the students who are joining us now including Orla McNamara who is a TY student at Skull Creek 3 who we're going to bring in first. Orla, good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm really well. Tell us about what you created in Skull Creek 3 then because uh, this sounds like a lot of work firstly to put this together. 100,000 styrofoam beads put together um, in an old beanbag chair. Tell us about the inspiration and your design. Um, well, our inspiration was Zach Posen and how he celebrates femininity um, in his work. So basically, our theme of our design was about the beauty that lies within. So that's why there's cutouts in our boots and it's the beanbag. Sorry, the styrofoam beads are from the inside of the beanbag. Is that? So we strung them together and then we knitted them and to make the base of the dress. And then we also stuck on some leads to our boots. Tell us about getting up on stage in the Borgosh then because back in school I got to the final of this kind of predecessor of this competition which was the form and fusion back in the day uh, before it was kind of rebranded and rethought as junk couture. I like there's a lot of work goes into putting your outfit together first of all but actually getting up on stage is what it's all about. Did you relish the moment of actually getting your design out there in front of the judges in front of the crowd last week after all the preparation and work that would have went in? Yeah, it was amazing. So Emma was the one that was on stage and she did a, like amazing job on stage with our routine and everything. But it was just so amazing to see it up there. Like it was it was unreal. 
I honestly didn't even feel feel like it was happening. And then there was like there was so much that was going on before, like the rehearsals and everyone getting ready together. It was just it was like so busy all day. It's one of those moments as well. Like, look, you're in a team there. You've got Alison Dalton there and Emma Tui along with you as well with this design. But it's one of those things you're always going to remember about TY. Like, it's kind of hard to top getting up in front of a national competition and effectively, like, aside from the designing and all the work and getting it to stage, performing at the Borgosh Energy Centre. Uh, you won't do many more worthwhile things in TY, I would think. Oh, no, that was definitely the highlight of our year. Like, I know from three of us it was. I have just the atmosphere and everything. Like, there were so many people there. It was just, I don't think anything could really be it. Fantastic. Well done on your uh, fantastic achievement. We'll bring the conversation across from Port Leash uh, to Moat on this one. Well, actually, before we go to Moat, we'll go to Wilson's Hospital School in Westmead first because we've got Clodagh Ramsey, who is a second year student in Wilson's. Clodagh, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. I mean, it's always great to talk to uh, you know good, creative students uh, from across the region who've been doing really, really well. Now, Bohemian Pampas Tree was your design. Tell us about it. Well, my design, the main message behind it was that fashion shouldn't cost the earth. So my design was actually a living piece. I kept it alive for six months. I had to water it and give it life and air every day. So it's been a big challenge. But my design has been borrowed from nature. Um, the pampas is dried. I've got living moss and black grasses in the shoulder piece of my design. So it's quite a big commitment to my design. Uh, yeah, that is a huge commitment and a huge risk that if anything happens, like for anyone who's got a plant and is keeping it alive at home, it takes, you know, constant maintenance. Here you are with, you know, the outfit which is crucial to going to the final and unlike the others where something can be sewed together or a, a different coffee cup can be worked back into the design, you had to make sure this thing stayed alive for quite some time. Yep, I did. It's been half a year now, six months. So, yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> and, Claudia, you were modelling it as well, were you? I was, yep, I worked by myself, so flying solo. <laughs> well, look, if you put all that work into getting the design together, I think you were working with Demo Tade as well um, as part of this. You want to get your moment on stage too. I mean, we were talking just a few minutes ago about like what a buzz it is to get up on stage at the Borgosh. What did it feel like to have your outfit there after putting all this careful maintenance and love into it uh, to actually get a chance to put it in front of the judges? It was amazing to actually get it in front of the judges to show my design and really spread my message, because that's one thing I really wanted to get across, is that fashion shouldn't cost the earth. But seeing everybody there on the day was incredible. Everyone had amazing designs. That is one of those things that's really important about this, is actually to have a philosophy around your design too. Like, this isn't as simple as, I'm just going to create an outfit, I'm going to make it look cool, I'm going to go and actually just you know model it in the day. A large part of the way that this is judged and the way that the competition is being considered is actually around the message of your outfit as well. Yep, that's a huge part of Drunk Couture because you want to get your message across and make sure that the audience and the judges know that your design is important. Claude, incredible work. Um, do you have to keep it alive now for a bit longer? How do you care for a it from longer, here? A bit longer, yes. <laughs> we'll make it through though. Good, good. Keep it watered. Keep it uh, as well treated as you possibly can. And thanks a million for joining us on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's go from Wilson's Hospital School in County Westmead to the other side of the county. Let's go down to the southwest to Moat Community School. And again, uh, we're chatting to one of the models here of Tale of Two Pods. We've got Kate Malloy with us. Kate, good morning to you. Good 
Good morning. Um, this sounds like uh, an idea that may well have been inspired in a house where there was an espresso machine or a similar brand, a similar machine of a different brand. Uh, you reworked coffee pods here. Yes, definitely. We have loads of friends and family who just had so many spare coffee pods because they drink it every day. So we just thought we better make a use of them because they're such beautiful colours. Yeah, look, the other thing as well is I put them back into a bag and I post them back, which is what I do at the end. So they give you the free bags to send them back. But sometimes I think like of just the sheer waste that comes from out of pods. And as you say, for the different flavors, they are kind of modeled in that way that they've got different colors and slightly different designs so they can be worked into this. But basically, you've got a few things coming together here. So you've got the 3000 coffee pods, which is a remarkable amount of work putting them together into an outfit, a broken umbrella. You've got heels in there. And this was all worked in with an old Debs dress. So there's a lot of recycling going on here. Yes, it's all about recycling. That's the whole competition, I guess. So the umbrella was actually used as the headpiece. So there was just a broken umbrella flying around the art room. So we just decided that it would make kind of an interesting choice for a headpiece. We'd never seen anyone use it before. So we just covered it in loads of coffee pods. Yeah, I, I, look, I saw a picture of your design. I think it, I think it works quite well because it adds something a little bit extra onto it as well with the headpiece. Again, as I sent to the, uh, the other girls, like, it, this is a fantastic moment across your TY year. I'm sure, like as a group working on this, because you've got Emer Keenan and also Samantha Irwin from the school who've been working on this too. I, I presume you've just built bonds of friendship over the many hours that would have been there sewing coffee pods together onto a dress. Yes, definitely. It was the highlight of my year. I'd really recommend it to anyone to do it. We just, even all the other girls in our year who were making the dresses, you just make so many friends and so many memories from it all. Well, look, my congratulations. Great to see Mo doing well on a national stage at the Borgosh as well with Tale of Two Pods. And um, it's great to see all those coffee pods going back to good use. Kate, thanks a million for joining us on the show this morning. Thank you. Great to hear from students from across the Midlands there uh, doing really well at Junkature on stage at the Borgosh in the Dublin section of the finals last week. That was on last Thursday. Now, we'll be talking to Billy Kelleher, MEP uh, for the Ireland South region about the situation in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's comments on Russia's Victory Day earlier today as well, just after our news headlines at 11. But the Thonishta doesn't believe that housing Ukrainian refugees in mobile homes is going to work as a long-term strategy to the accommodation crisis. A vacant Caravan Park in Gishel is being used for families who have fled Ukraine because of the invasion. Leo Varadkar says it works as a temporary measure, but he believes there's a need for a major increase in the supply of housing. I don't think as a long-term solution, um, people living in mobile homes uh, is going to work, uh, whether they're from Ukraine or from any other part of the world or indeed from Ireland. Um, you know, it might be something that we have to do um, as part of temporary solutions to accommodate people while uh, there is such an accommodation shortage uh, in the country. But um, I, I don't see it as a long-term solution, perhaps a temporary one. And what do you see as a long-term solution for accommodating Ukrainian refugees? Well, you know, the long-term solution is for Ukrainian refugees is the same as the solution for everyone, um, and that is to have uh, a very major increase in housing supply uh, of all types in all parts of the country. Um, and as I was pointing out at the conference earlier, um, only 20 years ago, there were 3.5 million people in Ireland. Uh, when the census comes in, it looks like there's 5.1 or 5.2. So in the space of only 20 years, we've seen a 50% increase in our population. But we've also seen a move to smaller families, more people living alone. And as a result of that, there's been a huge increase in the demand for housing and the need for housing. And that's at the root of the problems that we currently face. Uh, so the solution is more supply 
ramping up supply dramatically. Um, we are getting there. Uh, you, you know, about 20,000 new homes were built in the last 12 months. Uh, 30,000 started uh, construction in the past 12 months, and 40,000 came through planning permission. So you can see that pipeline uh, is coming through. But we are playing catch up. Uh, lost a lot of time because of the pandemic and lost a lot of time because of the collapse of the construction industry in the banks 10 years ago, but uh, uh, we're going to get there. And if, if they're going to be here long term, what's being done to increase their employability so that they can get jobs while they're here in Ireland? Yeah, two things really. I should say I was in Donegal yesterday in Milford where a number of Ukrainian families are living. I had a chance to speak with them uh, and also the people in the community who welcomed them and embraced them. And it was really heartwarming, I have to say, to see uh, you know, a small community, a small rural community in County Donegal being so welcoming uh, to people who've had to come all the way from Ukraine to live there. Um, and I think there are really two things that they would have said to me that came across to me. Uh, one is recognition of qualifications where possible. Uh, a lot of people coming from Ukraine have qualifications, um, but they're not recognised at the moment because they're not in the European Union, so we need to work on that. Uh, and the other area is intensive English classes, because uh, while some have English, um, most actually don't. Um, uh, and they're actually very keen to work, and that was really encouraging to you know, want to be part of the workforce, want to integrate in society, um, want to help us perhaps with some of the problems that we have uh, in terms of labour shortages, um, and government now needs to be, be an enabler in that regard. We will be reviewing the weekend sport in around 10 minutes time or so with Michael Brophy, including wins for the Leash and Offaly minor hurling teams. They will meet in a Leinster final this day week. Uh, still to be decided if it will be in Port Leash or Tullamore. That will be determined by a coin toss this afternoon, but it'll be the first time ever that Leash against Offaly is the final of the Leinster minor hurling championship. Now, Vladimir Putin has blamed the West for the war in Ukraine, saying he acted because NATO nations were planning to invade Russia. A huge military parade was taking place this morning to mark Victory Day. President Putin has been addressing his soldiers, comparing their struggle with the Soviet Union's defeat of the Nazis. You are fighting for the motherland, for its future, so that no one forgets the lessons of World War II, so that there is no place in the world for executioners, punishers and Nazis. That was Vladimir Putin speaking earlier today. A massive pomp and ceremony in Red Square in Moscow around the event. It was anticipated uh, that he was going to speak about Ukraine and he compared pretty much directly uh, within the speech uh, the invasion in Ukraine currently and uh, blaming the West entirely uh, for Russia's actions over the last month and a half. Uh, To speak about this, we're joined by Ireland South MEP Billy Kelleher. Billy, good morning to you. Good morning, Bill. Um, look, uh, this was no great surprise uh, what Vladimir Putin said. was watching it on Sky News just before we came on air uh, this morning. He used this as an opportunity to, I guess, outline a position which he's been keeping consistent, which is we have invaded regions within Ukraine, but he continues to blame America and NATO, particularly for the reason that they've gone in. Yes, well, anybody that uh, pursues a war that's illegal, uh, that has uh, no basis in since that it wasn't a threat to Russia, uh, has to have some enemy to um, uh, justify what they're doing. And on this occasion, um, they're using NATO, they're using uh, this uh, words of denazification of the Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, propaganda going on at the moment, but the, the fact remains that uh, Ukraine was of no military threat uh, to Russia. Uh, Russia has already invaded Ukraine. It's annexed Crimea in 2014. It has annexed parts of Luhansk and Donetsk in the east of Ukraine. So um, all in all, the aggressor in this since 2014 has always been Russia. And the idea that now all of a sudden, uh, you know, he's finding NATO to blame or somebody else to blame just indicates that his original plan of taking the entire Ukraine, bearing in mind he was going to invade um, Kiev, the capital, 
at the start of the war, and that was to put in place a puppet government that would effectively uh, rule yeah, Ukraine uh, from a, a Russian perspective. Uh, that didn't work out because the Ukrainian people and the army stood up and fought. Eventually, the West started to support Ukraine in terms of military support, financial support, and humanitarian support. And now the Russians are in uh, a difficult position in the sense that uh, they are bogged down. They're losing lots of um, uh, military equipment and, and unfortunately, soldiers as well. Uh, and people are dying. But the fact of the matter is that Russia is systematically destroying Ukrainian cities and uh, shelling civilians at will and has perpetrated war crimes, in my view. Well, one thing I took away from Putin's speech this morning was the phrase, an invasion of our historical lands. Now, he will say 2014, that was Crimea. Uh, we're particularly looking at Donbass in this case. But I'm sure there are other countries, uh, particularly Moldova. Uh, we look at what happened in Georgia previously as well. They have to be looking over their shoulders about Putin talking about land for the motherland and historic lands effectively of the Soviet Union, uh, which he's claiming that his soldiers are now fighting for. What's the risk of this potentially escalating into other countries as well? Well, I'm still hopeful that there'll be enough sane people uh, left in Moscow at, at the higher echelons to ad- advise uh, Putin that you know he, he can't pursue the war much further. Uh, what we need to do now is get to the negotiating table and to try and get the Russian troops to withdraw back to the original lines of demarcation. Uh, I mean, the idea that um, you know there's some uh, fanciful Russian empire out there that must be re-established. If that is the case, you know the Baltic states uh, are under pressure. Parts of Finland, which was uh, previously uh, part of the Russian Empire, Ukraine, Moldova, you know, right across the entire spectrum of, of parts of um, Eastern Europe would be under threat. So we have to explain to President Putin in the most diplomatic terms that you know any uh, annexation of any countries uh, is an illegal act and will be dealt with severely. And that's why NATO, people criticise NATO, but NATO is the only guarantor for countries like uh, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, all countries that were under the sphere of USSR influence for many, many years, and before that under uh, Russian Empire influence. So, you know, we have to be very conscious that Putin may decide to look elsewhere if he can't annex any more of Ukraine. When it comes to sitting around the negotiating table and diplomacy potentially winning out in all this, the two positions really are going to come from quite an extreme end. Because on the one hand, it seems that Sweden is now going closer potentially towards the idea of joining NATO. Ukraine have already put in their application to join the EU. Ukraine are looking effectively to have closer ties with NATO. And right now, they're using NATO weapons to fight the invasion against Russia as things stand. So on the one side, Russia was disagreeable to them, particularly and cutting off a corridor. So they're unlikely to want to agree to that. On the other side, there is no way after Ukraine, and particularly regime, that they are going to accept Russia annexing any of the current territory where their soldiers are in. What's the actual meeting point for negotiations here? Well, I mean, all, all wars end eventually. Uh, the difficulty, of course, with Putin is that he's still pursuing a war that he probably can't win. But, I mean, he certainly won't annex as much of um, eastern Ukraine as the Ukrainian uh, force are very resistant in other areas. But at some stage, there's going to be a negotiation. I mean, obviously, you know, Ukraine has said that the starting point for any negotiations is to withdraw to the original lines of demarcation, uh, 2014 lines of demarcation. Uh, if that was the case, well, then I think that would be a starting point. But bear in mind, the only reason that you know, negotiations will take place at all is due to the, the, the bravery and the, the, the struggle of the Ukrainian people and their army. I mean, otherwise Putin would have annexed the entire country. And if he had got away with that, well, then, you know, what would he do next? 
Would he be looking at Moldova? Would he be looking at other, at other countries? So, I mean, the only reason there will be negotiations is due to the fact that the Ukraine has resisted and resisted very determinedly. Otherwise, um, Putin, in my view, um, you know, has referenced the old um, Russian Empire, the USSR. He's referenced that frequently in speeches over the years. And that would mean that other countries would be in his um, eye in terms of annexation or, or, or conquering as well. So it is a difficult one. But bear in mind, I mean, Switzerland or Sweden and Finland are two countries that have said they are looking at joining uh, NATO. They're two European Union members. Um, and I certainly believe that they have the entitlement and the right as independent sovereign states determine their own foreign policy, bearing in mind they're not threatening Russia. And the same with Ukraine. Ukraine is putting forward an application to join the European Union. Um, it has now said that you know it will no longer discuss um, joining NATO. But at the same time, the only security that countries have around Russia due to Putin's aggressiveness is the fact that you know NATO does support them. So you look at Poland, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Lithuania, they're all NATO countries, um, uh, Romania and, and Bulgaria as well, because they all understand the threat that Russia is. And that's something I think in Ireland we were very sheltered from for a long time. And when I you know, used to speak to colleagues in the European Parliament, they saw always be saying Russia will someday come back. Uh, I thought they were being alarmist because of the historical you know, legacy of being uh, under the influence of Russia for many years, that they were uh, biased in their opinions. But it has uh, come to pass that uh, Putin is an aggressor and um, is intent on, you know, conquering neighbouring countries. Yeah, I think realistically after 2014, most people thought that uh, Russia's were going to be sated by the fact that they got areas within Crimea, that the feeling would be this is as far as Putin could push his hand because we could see exactly what's happening at the moment. For the normal person on the ground here within the European Union, Billy, how much do we have to brace ourselves for short or medium term pain though? Because you know, within the European Parliament, we've had various diplomats speak about the fact that when it comes to the sanctions to Russia, really where they're going to hit the Russian economy, if they want to do so, will be to effectively turn off the fossil fuels coming from Russia being imported into the EU. At the same time, the EU is incredibly reliant upon gas, particularly coming from Russia into the EU. In the middle of an energy crisis, the longer that this war goes on, it's going to have a serious impact on people living within the EU. Yes, I mean, that is a very significant uh, issue that we have to address. I mean, there's inflation is already creeping to the economies across the, the globe. It was creeping in quite dramatically in advance of the invasion based on the logistical supply uh, challenges due to COVID, uh, you know, and just the, the pressures that um, su- supply chains were under over the last number of years. That was putting pressure on inflation. And then the, the invasion happened, and that spiked uh, uh, oil and gas uh, prices quite dramatically. So, I mean, but we have to accept that if we are going to have a long duration war, it's also going to have a a destabilizing impact on the global economy. So, I mean, the quicker the war comes to the end, the better for everybody. In the meantime, sanctions will hurt Russia, but they will also have an impact on the cost of living uh, in Europe. But, like, if we are to be dependent on, on Putin, well, he has Europe over a barrel, well, he can inflate prices whenever he likes. Uh, he can turn off the tap whenever he likes, just as he did in the context of Poland and Bulgaria recently. So the, the quicker we wean ourselves off, I think the better for everybody, uh, but primarily for the Ukrainian people at the moment, because we're funding effectively uh, Russia's war in Ukraine by purchasing gas. So I think that the, the biggest difficulty we have is the German economy is very dependent on Russian gas. But I do detect 
that there's now an urgency even among the, the, the German politicians and political groupings to see how they can wean themselves off the dependence on Russian gas quicker than they had uh, accepted only three or four weeks ago. So oil will be phased out over the next number of months. By the end of the year, effectively, most uh, oil will not be purchased from Russia. One or two countries may because they're very dependent on it. And then we will be looking at reducing substantially the volumes of gas being purchased from Russia. But it will have a cost. It will drive up fuel prices and the cost of um, living in general. But bear in mind, food prices have gone up because of the, the, the concerns about global food supplies now, because Ukraine is a massive wheat producer, um, uh, soya producer, uh, you know, barley producer, and along with Russia. And if those two countries are out of the equation in terms of supply into the world market, well, then we're going to have pressures on the f- food costs right across the globe. Just on a final note, when it comes to Ukraine and people within Ukraine right now, we're 75 days into this invasion. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands into millions of Ukrainians have already fled the country and have made their way into the EU. Some have already come to Ireland at this point. You mentioned the fact that you know Zelensky has already put in his application for Ukraine to join the EU, which could be fast-tracked because of the situation here. Is there going to be a much stronger bond between the EU and Ukraine after this invasion finishes? I think so. I, yes, I believe so, and I hope so. I mean, Ukraine has shown itself to fight for principles and freedoms, um, they are very much the principles and freedoms that we all enjoy in the European Union. It does want to join the EU. One of the reasons the Russians are inside killing Ukrainians, as I speak to you, is because Putin does not want a free, democratic, liberal, open, tolerant society uh, near its borders. It wants to have uh, Russian puppet regimes, just like he has in Belarus. So the, the reason he's in there is because of their belief systems, of the value systems that they have, which are akin to the European value systems. So, you know, it will make its application to become a candidate country. There'll be a lot of work done before it actually can become a full member. But in the meantime, we can have trade agreements with us. We can have visa agreements with us. We can have um, close cooperation. Obviously, there'll be a huge amount of construction obligations uh, in terms of cost, funding, financing. Uh, in the years ahead as well because of the massive destruction of Ukraine. But the first thing we have to do is to try and bring this war to an end, hopefully diplomatically, but in the meantime, it's being militarily played out, unfortunately, and people are dying. But, uh, like, what we don't want to do is to end up someday and, you know, the Ukrainian resistance falling apart or uh, the West withdrawing from because they don't have the, 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 the willpower to stay with the Ukrainian people. I believe we're now in... We have to stand with him. That means increasing the sanctions. That means uh, more humanitarian support, accepting uh, uh, you know, people that come into the European Union to flee a Russian aggression. And also NATO uh, you know, will be supporting him as well. But you know, that needs to be sustained. Otherwise, if Putin believes there's a weakness in, in, in Western resolve, well, then he may continue to wage war. And, and that could have a detrimental effect on Ukraine's ability if we don't stay with them. Billy Keller, MEP representing the Ireland South region. Many thanks for joining us on the show this morning. Time for your review of the weekend sports. case of former desk mates and former housemates get to take over the Midlands Today show for the next 20 minutes or so and have a look at the weekend sport. Michael Brophy, how are things? Hi, Will. Not so bad. Good to hear from you and good to hear from you on what's been a reasonably positive weekend for the Midlands, probably headlined by the fact that I have never known people who've been sitting around waiting for a coin toss to happen as much as Leash yeah. and Offaly supporters, because, look, what is rare is wonderful. And in this case, Leash into just their second Leinster minor hurling final since 2000. They were in the final in 2013. 
Offaly have only been to four uh, during that period. So uh, this is remarkable. Two really good wins are for the two Midland counties in those semi-finals on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the results first of all, Offaly three eighteen, Dublin one fifteen. Um, pretty comprehensive win, really. In the end, these two games taking place at the same time. Leash beating Kilkenny one fifteen to fifteen points. Um, I was at my nephew's first birthday party on uh, Saturday lunchtime, and the, I could see see the word filtering through that there was a couple of shocks on the cards uh, in the the Leinster minor semi finals. And uh, really, the Offaly game was in hand with about 10 or 15 minutes left. So all eyes were on O'Moore Park as uh, Leash tried to hold on to a, a pretty healthy lead from the first half. And indeed, Kilkenny had a 21-yard free to try and uh, to salvage a draw uh, pretty much in the, the final minute of injury time. But that was saved and Leash managed to hold on and win 115 to 15 points. And by all accounts, a very deserved win there as well. So, um, look, it's, it's immense credit has to go to, to everyone involved in, in the grassroots of, of hurling and Offaly and Leash. These are seismic results and, and shows that when the right structures are in place, um, the, the strides that can be made in, in a couple of years uh, when it comes to trying to, to take down the bigger counties in hurling. Oh, no, definitely. And look, in Offaly, it's been on a while that Adam Screeny is going to be a star like he is a rising star two goals and eight points I was chatting to Sean Lane who was on the double management and straight away he pointed out I was like this kid's going to be ready for senior very very soon he's got all the attributes already he got 2-8 for Offaly uh, Dan Ravenhill scored 1-5 as you say the beat Dublin in the end 3-18 to 1 goal and 15 I admittedly a bit like you I was in work at the time I had the two YouTube streams which were running I think I had one open on Twitter and one on YouTube and I was actually able to relax away from the Offaly game a little bit as it became really clear when they went six or seven points up with five to go. It's like, oh, I'll just concentrate on what's happening in Leash against Kilkenny. Because Leash had a lead. Um, like, Ben Deegan is really good from place balls. He got 10 points in the end. Two of them came in injury time. They beat Kilkenny 115 to 15 points. I don't think it's going to matter a whole lot. Offaly beat Leash in the round robin section of this championship a few weeks back. But then Leash took the slightly longer route to get to the final, but beat Wexford and Kilkenny to get to the decider. So two uh, remarkably good results for Declan Qualter's side to get to that final as well. And and really one of those points as well, just to mention, yeah. from must have been Ben Deegan, was from about at least 100 metres in injury time as well. It was one of those one of those frees that would just raise the roof off uh, O'Moore Park as well. And it would kind of suck the life out of a Kilkenny team that were trying to, to get an equaliser as well. So... They, they finished strong uh, coming up against a Kilkenny team that would have fancied their chances to to win out in the end. Yeah, big sell. I think whatever it had been at the Abbey Leaks road end and hitting towards the town end, he was almost an Abbey Leaks when he took that free uh, for Leash to come through. One fifteen to 15 so remarkable achievement by both teams to get to the final. In the Camogie, I suppose, look, disappointment across the board. Um, if I could start with Westmead, Michael, because we have a bit of news uh, coming out of the Lake County in that they've got a new manager who's now going to be in place for the all-Ireland Intermediate campaign. Remarkably, the Camogie Association still haven't done their draws yet, so we still have to wait and see how that's going to shape up. But it's a temporary man who's going to take charge uh, following their loss in the Leinster Senior Camogie semi-finals to Dublin at the weekend. Yeah, Dermot Carroll uh, taking charge of the Westmead uh, Intermediate Camogie team, I suppose, heading into the, the now the, the uh, county county championship, or sorry, the inter-county um, All-Ireland campaign. Uh, they lost out by 115 to four points on Saturday afternoon in that Leinster semi-final. Uh, in Burr then as well, uh, Kilkenny were found themselves too strong for Offaly, uh, winning 418 to 112. 
Uh, Miriam Walsh scored 2-2 for the reigning champions, Kilkenny, uh, as they won at St. Brendan's Park. Marie Tegan, top scoring for the hosts with 10 points. Indeed, a couple of days ahead of that match, it was announced that uh, Roisin Egan uh, would be captain for Offaly for the upcoming campaign. So, yeah, um, all, all eyes turning to the uh, All-Ireland series now starting later this month. So it is a pretty quick turnaround um, for, for both teams. But um, it is good to see, uh, I would say, a, a greater focus on the provincial series at, uh, at Camogie level. Um, I'm noting it in Munster as well, that um, I think, think maybe there's a bit more time to focus on the provincial series, albeit there is no link to the, the All-Ireland campaign. No, it's no harm. I mean, the Leinster final is going to be in Omar Park this Saturday, which is one of the main reasons that the minor game ended up going to Monday. Well, one of the reasons it did. And it's great to see out there. So you'll get Kilkenny against Dublin on Saturday. Ladies football-wise, oh man, I was sitting here in the studio yesterday. I was planning for a leash run to the Leinster Intermediate final this coming weekend. I was wondering when they were going to be playing against Kildare. Is it going to be moved around? Because Kildare are playing against Westmead on Sunday in our live game here in the inside line. And then... Wexford, last year's beaten All-Ireland finalists, overturned an 11-point deficit to overcome Leach. Yeah, absolutely. And just quickly to go back to Camogie, just in the intermediate of Leinster, um, just another result from the weekend, um, me beating Leach 113-18 to in the semi-finals uh, to go on to face Kildare uh, in that. But uh, likewise, Leach and ladies football disappointment there. Um, an 11-point second-half lead, I believe, at about the 35-minute mark. But Leach didn't score for the rest of the second half. Um, even at that, um, Leash still had a healthy enough lead coming up towards uh, full time, but two late Wexford goals, forced extra time. And really with all the, the momentum in Wexford's favour, they won out by two points in the end, 4-16 to 4-14 at uh, O'Moore Park after extra time. Moan Ernie, uh, top scoring for Leash with uh, 1-8, but a huge disappointment there for Leash. Um, they were unbeaten in the group stages. Would have fancied their chances there of heading towards a, a Leinster final, but uh, really disappointing into uh, that campaign. But hopefully, some they can salvage some positives anyway heading into the All Ireland series. Uh, and uh, we'll bring you some reaction here. Mags McAvoy uh, was on hand to give us some reaction from the Leash camp, uh, former captain indeed after the game. Wexford deserve it. I feel like they came into the extra time uh, 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 with a little more momentum than Leash uh, did. Leash were on the back foot coming in. Um, they took their opportunities in the first half. They, they handled that wind well in the first half and went three points ahead into into the second half, the extra time. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate for Leash. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great game to get uh, against a really, really strong Wexford side. And, and they'll take a lot of positives, but they'll learn a lot as well for it going into the All-Ireland ser- Series. I feel like they, probably Probably they'll be the, the the more disappointed because they feel like they should have probably won it in normal time. Uh, excellent performance by Wexford. Can't take it away from them. They managed that really well. Uh, way more aggressive coming into the final stages of that and the extra time. Uh, you, you can't fault them. They were definitely the better team on the day. Yeah, and Michael, it's going to be Wexford facing Kildare this weekend because uh, Kildare had a comprehensive enough victory against Offaly. Understandably, when these teams were a couple of leagues away from each other in the National Football League. Yeah, uh, Kildare had a, an early lead in this one and really uh, kept awfully at arm's length for most of it. Finished uh, 5-14 to 3-6 at Hawkfield. Uh, Nasa Dooley doing a lot of the damage for Kildare, ending up with 3-3. Uh, Marie Bird for Offaly scored 2-1. Uh, indeed, at the halftime score, and that one was 4-6 to 1-3. So Kildare really had a lot of the hard work done in that opening 30 minutes. But it has been a positive camp- campaign, obviously, so far for Offaly. 
uh, in as winning the uh, Division Four League. So they'll be hoping to build on that uh, in the All Ireland series when that gets going in a few weeks' time. Indeed, start of the All Ireland Championships in the ladies' football start on the weekend of May twenty eighth and twenty ninth. Well, you were in the Gaelic grounds yesterday, or the TUS Limerick Gaelic grounds, and to give its official title. Tipperary gave it socks, Michael, despite the fact you know, you're down five or six uh, key players, the fact the uh, two Mars have gone after the run from 2010 right through to 2021 within the team. The feeling was that Tipperary could potentially take a bit of a scutching against the All-Ireland champions. Not the case at all. I mean, a very deceptive full-time scoreline, Limerick 321, Tipperary 23 points. This is a game Tipperary were leading with 10 minutes to go. Yeah, I mean, it was a very strange build-up to this game in general. Um, ever since the Clare defeat, there was the feeling that um, the chances of getting out of Munster were uh, slim to none, especially heading into a, a game against Limerick, who'd been so impressive in the first two games. Allied to that, then, you're losing Jason Ford uh, during the week to injury, as well as James Quigley, who started the two games at full-back. Um, so really depleted uh, panel as well, allied to retirements and other injuries. But uh, yeah, from a Tipperary point of view, um, you'd have to say a, a pleasing performance. Um, probably lost opportunity, really, considering Limerick were definitely off off the pace for, for some reason. That's definitely in some part down to Tipperary's performance. They really stood up to them from minute one, uh, Tipperary. Got off to a slow enough start. I think Limerick got, got about four or five points clear, but then Tip really finished the first half stronger and uh, built a lead that they held on to until about 10 minutes from time. Uh, Tipperary will lament that there was a moment in the second half where there were three clear and had three very good opportunities to push further clear. And you got the feeling that that would come back to haunt them and it kind of did. Tip had the goal chances that they didn't take. Limerick had four overall and took three of them. And uh, we'll, we'll give you a bit of audio here at Colin Bonner. He spoke to Tip FM Stephen Gleeson after the game and echoed th- those sentiments. It doesn't really matter whether you're on your first cap or your 38 or 40 cap. Like any player that gets a jersey, they're there on merit. And, you know, we expect them to go at it. And what they gave in the first, you know, what, what they gave in terms of their energy and how well they matched up to the, to the Limerick players who obviously, you know, they have a, a huge physical presence. I thought we, we did that well, but yeah, and that's why the last kind of eight or nine minutes was just so disappointing for, for our players in terms of because what they gave, you know, we just a bit more clinical and we wouldn't have been in that position. What's the mood like in the dressing room right now? You know, what's the, the spirit in the camp at this stage? Obviously improved from the clear game, but uh, where are we now? Yeah, well, look, um, we came down here to win and um, we wanted to keep some kind of hopes uh, alive in terms of the championship. We know now that that's gone, that's gone beyond us. We're devastated over that because, um, as I said, we didn't want to be out of the championship. Uh, this wasn't on the plan and, um, you know, we just had to go back to the drawing board. And yeah, we do have one championship game um, and that's against Cork. And Cork, you know, they, I suppose they have still something to play for. They have to play Waterford and they have to play uh, Clare, I think. So... Um, but yeah, look, we—it's our last game, and uh, we're going to have to, you know, we want to finish finish on a high. Mm. Limerick pretty much into the final as things stand. Not officially, they're definitely in the All Ireland Championship because they can't now finish outside the top three. But a sequence of results, if they were to lose in Clare, could happen. That potentially points difference could happen at the top. But we may as well say Limerick are effectively into the final. We may as well say Michael Tipperary are effectively out at this point because again, it would take a hell of a sequence of results to play them back in, as Colin Bonner mentioned. Even if they do win their last game. So at this stage, it looks like uh, this game between Clare and Limerick this coming weekend is going to be quite interesting because 
Do Limerick take the foot off the pedal ever so slightly because they're all but in it? Or do they try and get a win over their neighbours? Sorry, I think I lost you there for a second. But yeah, no, I heard your question there. Um, I don't think Limerick will be in any mood to give Clare uh, a confidence boost by uh, allowing them an opportunity or, or a greater opportunity to win this weekend. I think Limerick will be going full bore really at this one. Um, like, like you said, I mean, it's not there's not an unreasonable set of circumstances that would mean that Limerick miss out. I think by score difference there, it'll be very difficult to overtake them. But Clare and Waterford can both still get to six points. Um, but I, I'd expect a rip-roaring game there between Limerick and Clare. Um, Clare will, you know, they'll be very pleased after the first two games, but still this this um, this Sunday's match will really tell us whether they're all Ireland contenders on a par with, uh, with Waterford in terms of challenge in Limerick. So, uh, yeah, this weekend will tell us a lot. Like I said, Tip, uh, pleased with elements of... of of it, but it, there was the fear that this would be a transition year, and so it's it's proving to be. But uh, a couple of players um, shown shown well in the last couple of games, and uh, Colin Bonner will just be hoping that he can build on that and uh, try and uh, build on a couple of good performances in next year's campaign. Well, if you want to hear some more hurling, the hurling pod uh, will drop around seven o'clock this evening. I'll be chatting to James Skell and also to Paul Murphy about that game. Looking forward to this weekend, previewing both Westmead and Leash's games this Saturday. We're also going to be talking about the Aaron Galan Challenge. Brian Gavin has had a say in the examiner, the uh, awfully native former All-Ireland final referee. He says he would have sent Galan off. I would have probably given Galan a yellow card. What would you have done, Michael, as a Tipperary supporter? Well, <laughs> that's, uh, well, yeah. Um, well, look, kind of, I was up in the back of the Ennis Road Terrace looking on. I... It, it looked wild at the time, but I, I, from that distance, I could see that there was just about enough mitigation that I didn't think it was a terribly bad call, but he can count himself very lucky. As Brian Gavin mentioned, and it was something that I hadn't factored in, Gillan was pulling on the ball or try, you know, given the impression of pulling on the ball away from goal. So um, he, Gavin, Brian Gavin basically says that, you know, yeah, Brian. If if Aaron Galan is, is really has true intentions of connecting with the ball, you know that ball is ending up at midfield if he connects with it properly with the force that that went into it. So, I, I didn't I didn't think it was as cast iron a red card as last year. But I think if he got a straight red for it, he couldn't have had any complaints. Um, as and even a Limerick supporter that I was uh, chatting to after the game, he said it was orange. And I would have to agree that I think one way or the other, there would, it was borderline, borderline. But I, I can see I can see the arguments one way and the other. He was a very worried looking boy as he started to walk away from the instant. I think he's thinking, I'm in trouble here. But the thing is, he kind of took one hand off the hurl after he swung. So it was almost like he went, oh, I'm going slightly late. Ron has got the ball. And in that split second, he just kind of pulls out of the flake. I think if both hands had been on his stick, and he had gone in full pelt. Galan's getting a red card and probably a suspension. So he, he can consider himself a bit of a lucky boy. Uh, elsewhere across the weekend then, Ulster Football Championship, Donegal coming through in the end uh, by 216 to 16 points against Cavan. Again, that full-time scoreline is maybe a little bit deceptive. Cavan were right in that game going into injury time. Uh, Cavan now drop into the Talton Cup where they'll be considered one of the favourites for the competition. Donegal will take on the winners of this Sunday's match between Monaghan and Derry in the final. In the Leinster, fo- or sorry, in the Connacht Football Championship even, it was Galway 420, Leitrim 9 points. No great shock 
there. But looking forward to the 29th, Galway and Roscommon in the Connacht final and Leitrim drop into the Talton Cup. And in the Munster football, again, Kerry pulled away in the last 15 minutes. Uh, to beat Cork in the end by 23 points to 11 at Porky Rin, it means that Kerry now await Tip or Limerick in the Munster final and Cork go into the qualifiers, not the Talton Cup, because they stayed in Division 2. Let's switch to rugby then, because... Uh, I have to admit, Michael, on the train home at the weekend, there were plenty of Lunster supporters who were uh, making their way to Tullamore on the train and they got out. Um, But Munster fans, no matter which side of the divide they're from geographically, travel in massive numbers to the Aviva Stadium on Saturday. 40,000 odd there. I'd say it was about 38,000 of them were Munster supporters. An amazing atmosphere. Didn't feel like they'd even given away home advantage by having to go to the Aviva. A remarkable game which finished 24 apiece at the end of normal time and at the end of extra time. We got to see the place-kicking competition decide it. Unfortunately for young Ben Healy, he missed a couple and Conor Murray missed one in the spot-kick competition. But is it a game that Munster will feel they probably should have closed out in the 80 minutes against the reigning European champions? Yeah, I, I think they'll be very disappointed. Um, it'll be a mixture of emotions because you would have to say when Toulouse hit a 14-7 lead about halfway through the first half, I had my worries. It looked like the Munster scrum was being absolutely demolished. Um, every set piece, Toulouse were were well on top. Um, but Munster managed to turn it around. Um, I'd say due in no small part to the inspiration they would have taken from the Sea of Red around the Aviva Stadium and really in the second half, they looked the more, well, they, they built a 24-14 lead. Toulouse, you never really felt it was a, a fully safe lead. It was no surprise that Toulouse came back into it. Um, I thought it was written in the stars that Ben Healy would step up with a 56-meter kick to, to try and to try and win it uh, in, with the last kick of the game in normal time. It fell just short. Um, I had my fears then heading into to extra time that Toulouse would just be too strong, uh, Munster's inexperience and maybe just their, they looked a little bit out on their feet, but really an extra time, Munster looked like the only team that was uh, threatening to, to get the three points that would have been enough to win the game. Uh, went to penalties, uh, a new new version of this the penalty shootout uh, in a rugby Sorry setting. to cut across you, right, but I don't yeah. like it because this is set up in such a way that they want people to succeed Place kicks should be yeah. about embarrassing <laughs> moments where a tight head proper, loose head has to step up, having never kicked a ball probably since they left school and having to step up at the 10 metre line and try and put it between the posts. It is elitist having to decide that you're going to have three kick takers and they go in this little uh, box in six positions around. I much prefer back in 2009 when it was like, well, we've gone through our backs and now our flanker is going to have to kick a penalty that might well decide if we go to a European final. Well, you can put the shoe on the other foot and say, look, it, it, in that way, it's very harsh on the forwards who are not used to kicking. So maybe, I don't know, you have a, a line-out contest or something and you have the, the full-back throwing the ball in um, into, I don't know, some sort of a, a hoop and then the the, the uh, bonuses with the likes of your Ronan Kellehers and Dan Sheehan's. Um, but it's, look, one way or the other, I don't think there's, it definitely doesn't work as well in rugby as it does in, in, in soccer, uh, the penalty shootout. But you can't you can't ask these players to keep on playing, um, you know, given the attrition of, of a rugby game. Yeah, look, there's arguments for and against whether the old-fashioned penalty shootout is the way forward. Um, look, one way or the other, there's going to be... Uh, you know, an unfortunate soul that that ends up missing the kicks, and unfortunately, in this case it was Ben Healy who who missed both of his. Um, but look, 
in in this case it was it was all three uh players for both sides that were uh you know pretty regular kickers so at least in that way um it gives both sides a good chance uh we might just turn to to Leinster who will face the uh the winners of that game, Toulouse, who face a third trip to Ireland in little over a month um, after playing Ulster in the last round. Munster last weekend, and now they're back to the Aviva this Saturday. Uh, they take on Leinster, who were very impressive winners, winning three, 23 points to 14 away to the Premiership leaders at Leicester at Welford Road. Leo Cullen had a chat uh, after the game. Huge shift from the guys, obviously get through. Um, incredibly tough place to come. Uh, amazing atmosphere at the game. Um, literally from the moment we got off the bus, it was um, it was incredible to see that sea of blue and support. Um, and yeah, like it was, there was the, some really good parts, particularly in the first half. Um, nice clinical moments in terms of executing. You know, Josh Benfly gets in for a good try. Robbie Henshaw gets in for a good try. Um, and which gives us that bit of breathing space, you know, in terms of the scoreboard piece. It was a huge win for the Welford Road against the uh, Premiership leaders and as Michael mentioned, 3 o'clock uh, that game at the Aviva Stadium. A couple of friends of mine who were going to Westmeath against Wexford afterwards. Uh, they're going to have some dash from the Aviva to uh, Mullingar uh, to make the half-six throw-in for that one. Uh, this weekend we will have live coverage at 5pm of the game between Leash and Galway in Port Leash and then we'll be going to Mullingar for Wexford against Westmeath at half-past six. Sunday then, 2.15 start for Westmeath against Kildare. Just to finish up on the Premier League, uh, Michael, again, these teams don't drop many points when it comes to the title race. feels like Man City are now in complete control. Two games left, no FA Cup or European concerns for them, so they can focus on cleaning out six points in their last two fixtures. If they do that, Man City will be retaining the Premier League title. But really entertaining game between Liverpool and Spurs, where Liverpool were held to a one-all draw. Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, I guess, especially on the back of the two Champions League semi-finals, you would have expected that Liverpool would be the team that would carry greater momentum into those games. Um, but I'm sure it helped Man City's, um, you know, their perspective heading into the game yesterday that Liverpool had dropped points uh, and knew that, right, we look after business against Newcastle, that will go a long way to retaining the, the Premier League title. Uh, Liverpool would be very disappointed, really. It, it, like I said, you would have sensed that the momentum was with them. Uh, drawing one all, fell behind, uh, only got an equaliser through Diaz and with about 15 minutes to go. Um, but albeit against the Spurs side, who made it very difficult for Liverpool. Uh, but Man City, it really looks like, uh, even, even with, the, with the potential for a defeat and Liverpool winning out, uh, Man City's uh, goal difference now, especially after a 5-0 win yesterday, is looking very, very strong. So uh, Liverpool really with it all to do. So may have to do with uh, with only three trophies this year. <sighs> Just the three. Look, quadruple probably gone for Liverpool, but they've got the FA Cup final uh, this coming weekend and they've still got the Champions League final to come against Real Madrid. Michael, great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Will.